you, you get the situation we're getting into is where the owner of the asset says it doesn't make financial sense. But at the same time, the system as a whole needs that asset. Good everybody. This is Ben Beattie on the Baseload podcast. Today, I'm talking to adjunct professor at UQ, Stephen Wilson. Stephen's uh, agreed to come on and have a chat about uh, what he's been up to, and we're going to get into the national electricity market. On my, uh, on my pre-prepared questions I have here, one of the things I wanted to ask Stephen was, uh, in lieu of a detailed biography, you've put out a fairly interesting uh, nuclear report recently called What Would Be Required. Uh, do you want to talk us a bit about that, the background of that, and your, and your findings? Yeah, thanks, Ben. Um, I, I uh, jokingly uh, used to jokingly say to my students that uh, engineers think of me as an economist and economists think of me as an engineer. Um, so I, I, my whole career has been at the, um, the overlap of uh, engineering and economics and then more recently, uh, well, probably from the beginning, policy and more recently, you know, the bigger geopolitical, international and geopolitical issues. Uh, but I, that's why energy, I think, is so interesting because it, it's, it's not just engineering. It's not just economics. No, you need everything's got it's to kind of work together yeah, to make it work. Yeah. So that's the, that's, the, that's the first five minutes of the, uh, the first lecture of the course I developed and, uh, and delivered a few years ago was to, was to basically say to the students, if, you, if you're not looking at all three of those domains simultaneously if you don't have them at least in the back of your mind you're gonna you're gonna sort of wipe out and uh, do a face plant at some point that's interesting do your do your students push back on that or they accept they accept that wisdom yeah no i think they they generally uh they generally get that and the particular that particular class i was teaching was a mixed a mixed multitude so it was um that course is offered within one of the engineering schools that that master of sustainable energy at uq um, which is a pretty interesting course for it's, it's often you know people wanting to um, maybe make a career transition or or ex- expand out from there. Okay, so you're not just pure undergrads. You've got people it's, who have some experience. No, in that's the a industry. it's a ma- yeah, that's a master's program, and uh, and it's it's um, I mean some there are some students come fresh out of an undergrad into that, but but the students who really probably get the most out of it are the ones who've got a bit of real world professional experience behind them. And, uh, and so because the class is, is a mixture of engineers and non-engineers, it's actually quite important to, to bring all those domains together and, and uh, get the students working in groups. So that, that's the other fun thing about energy, I think, is, you know, you get to, as an engineer, you get to work with economists and vice versa. And, yeah, there's, uh, yeah, in my career as, a, as an engineer, I've, I've certainly come across a whole range of people and just, uh, just from, from an outsider's perspective, I guess, my... My uh, my thoughts on the engineering community is that you to be successful you have to be able to communicate well yeah. and and work with different teams of people because there's lots of different requirements to get something working and engineering is just is just one component. Yeah, that's right. So you mentioned the uh, the study that that I led at the University of Queensland. Yep, and you have uh, a glossy copy in front of you. Love, yeah, love I'm, it. I'm holding it up to the microphone and uh, <laughs> so everyone can see. But, but actually, if, if people want to find this, uh, if they go to, I think it's energy.uq.edu.au and then slash what would be required. That's great. I'll, that, put, a, that, I'll put a link in the yeah, podcast. That'll take people to the, uh, to the PDF of the report. So, um, yeah, so this uh, was a pretty interesting study. Um, I, f- I feel like uh, nuclear energy has been sort of following me around for the last few years. Um, 
people probably start to think of me as an oh he's the nuclear guy but that's uh, that's how you come across these yeah, days yeah, yeah. You, you were on chris kenny well, not long ago yeah, uh, robert bryce yeah, but, but when i was in uh, when i was in london working at uh, eca wonderful wonderful consultancy in london called economic consulting associates you know, people used to think of me. Oh, he's the gas guy. <laughs> All right, okay. And then yeah, I and I used yeah. to say, you know, they said, oh, you're the you're the father of the uh, Southeast Europe, you know, gas master plan. Yeah, I wrote that thing for the World Bank. You know, and uh, it's like, yeah, but I used to be the electricity guy. You know, <laughs> it's it's and, it's really good to hear that you do have that level of uh, experience across different areas. You're not yeah. coming at this as a newbie, as a beginner. Yeah, and I, and I started out as the energy efficiency guy, right? And so energy efficiency and demand-side management and, you know, saving the planet and all those good things. So um, There's nothing wrong with efficiency. It's just uh, it's, uh, I described efficiency and demand management to someone as efficiency is let's do more with less. Demand management is just let's do less. Yeah, well, I mean, classic energy efficiency is sort of just saving the, the units of energy, right? Um, and demand-side management is a whole... That was the term that uh, actually the owner of the, the first company I worked for, which was called SRC, the guy who started that, Dilip LeMay, together with Clark Gellings at EPRI, I think coined the term demand-side management. You know, it's like, okay, we've got all these ideas, we need a name for it. And I think so, I, yeah. it, it's obvious, there's an obvious place for it in electricity markets, but I'd argue it's more associated with the, the big uh, sort of last resort users rather than distributed across the entire retail sector. Yeah, there, there's... Um, so demand side management is a is a toolbox that has a, a bunch of things in it. One of those is just classic sort of saving energy, and then there's various ways of um, managing more like managing the time use of electricity. Uh, so you know the classic peak clipping and load shifting and responsive demand and yeah. I did demand to... did demand side make it into your report? No. So the so the um, the the UQ study you're you're referring to, the what would be required study, is is focused on a specific topic related to nuclear energy, and uh, so the the backstory of how that came about is um, a wonderful UQ alumnus called Barry Murphy, uh, who, who studied chemical engineering back in the day at UQ uh, and went into the oil and gas industry and ended up running um, Caltex Asia Pacific. Um, oh, the lefties will hate him. Well, you know, but Barry, Barry's an interesting guy, right? Barry's, um, Barry's concerned about climate change and uh, he, you know, he's obviously retired for many years now from, from the oil and gas industry, but he uh, had become concerned that, you know, people were not uh, taking seriously probably the most, you know, one of the most powerful levers that we've got to reduce CO2 emissions. So you've got people, you know, telling us they're concerned about emissions, but then... Unable to say the N word. Yeah, that's right. And so, um, and then there, there are a whole lot of people uh, focused on the the ban that exists in Australia. So the the law, the legal bans in federal law, and and of course also in state law in most of the states. It's it. That's a really interesting point because uh, you would uh, engage with quite a few people from overseas, and mm. from overseas looking in, it mustn't make much sense that there's a ban on it. Yeah, well, Australia's definitely an outlier. Um, you know, if you compare us with other G20 countries, other OECD countries, uh, you know, advanced... We stand uh, alone with a ban on it. Yeah, advanced industrialised societies. Uh, and then you say, you know, what, what, what's... And, and by the way, one of the biggest uranium-producing countries in the world, you know... Substantial or, or, reserves. Yeah, he, he, well, biggest known reserves in the world. Um, you know, clear top 10 producer... 
an exporter of this commodity, um, uh, technologically advanced um, in niches in the nuclear sector, you know, so ANSTO, through ANSTO and, and the work there, the, the research reactor and things we do there, uh, you know, inventing cutting edge new technologies, all that, all that sort of thing. And then what's, what's with this ban? And, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it's a sort of, we've had the luxury of um, putting these bans in place and leaving them there, and uh, the deals in, in, that get done right in, yeah, behind with, the scenes. Yeah, that's right. So that was a that was a pretty sort of uh, questionable political horse trading deal led to that, of course, at the fed, for the federal bans. Um, but anyway, Barry uh, was of the view that you know the, these bans are not the most sensible thing in the world. And and was he and, integral uh, in kicking off? This yeah, report? he's he's really the the originator and the sponsor of the of the work, uh, and and you know he's a he's a benefactor of the university, and he's he's uh, he's he's endowed money for good things through the university through the engineering faculty, and he said um, he asked he didn't ask the question how can we get rid of the bans he he asked a more brilliant question, and it, it wasn't until we started doing the work I realised how clever the question was, so he cast his mind forward into the future, past the day when the bans have been repealed. And he said, uh, what would, he sat me down at lunch and he said, what would be required for nuclear energy plants to be operating? It's a nice open question, isn't it? Yeah, in, the, in Australia from the 2030s. And I sort of took a deep breath and sat back and I said, well. I could write a paper on that. Well, I said, that's a huge, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I said, um, my first reaction was, that's a huge question. You know, that's, it's, it's, a, it's, it's one question, but underneath that, it, you know, is sort of seven or eight other questions. And, and so we, we broke it down into, into its pieces. Yeah, I mean, and, I've, yeah. I've gone through the report and when, when we caught up before your presentation to the, uh, the AIP about it, um, I'd read it a couple of times while then and I was, I was pinning it down trying to, trying to have a look at some of the details <laughs> yeah. and then we agreed to talk about it in uh, markets in more detail. So yeah. um, I, do, I do appreciate how it's broken up into the different chapters and the sections. Yeah. It does make it easy to follow and find, find information. Um, I wanted to use that as a bit of a segue to talk about our electricity yeah. markets. Yeah. Um, do you think that in the current arrangement, nuclear can, can make its way in? Well... Well, to, to get for nuclear to, to find a place or to have a place in the Australian electricity system and in the market, there's a whole lot of pieces that have to you know come into into place. Um, but uh, I think you're right to ask the question about what's happening in the market right now. And actually, we, we try to paint the picture of that right right up front um, in the in the beginning of the report. Uh, when we're sort of laying out the context, you know, the introduction, we talk about the context and, and the background and, and so on. And so there, there is a view in Australia that, oh, we don't, we don't need nuclear, you know, we, and, and 20 years ago the view was probably we've got plenty of, you know, very low-cost coal and then we've got also got gas and, of course, we've got the, you know, the big, the big snowy hydro scheme and all those things. So we just don't really need nuclear. And that, we, uh, We've yeah. been very lucky in Australia, I think, with our, with our resources and continue to be very lucky, although I, I would argue that we're heading into some pretty unlucky or d not even luck because luck implies it's happened by chance. Mm. Uh, we're heading into some uh, dangerous territory market-wise. I don't see how it can, or how the market can sponsor new generation or baseload. Yeah. And I, I believe, despite what the renewables lobby claims uh, and whether people agree with me or not, they've disparage the term baseload to the point where yeah. people don't think it exists. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very true. 
um, trying to because one of the uh, one of the arguments that um, people who are like you and me, Ben, who are concerned about the direction we're going in, one of the arguments has been there is a need for baseload energy, and the, and the counter argument to that is that's an old, out of date idea from the 20th century, and we don't need baseload in the 21st century. And I understand the basis of that argument, but I think it's actually not a correct argument um it's a bit too glib for me i don't i think there's uh they're glossing over a lot of the uh the fundamentals yeah. needed out of yeah. out of an electricity system yeah so the the term load uh you got to understand what load what load is you know demand i mean what what we're talking about is what's the minimum level of instantaneous load on the system you know at all times and uh you're talking like a 3am 4am yeah, so that's right. So the lowest instantaneous load on the system is is usually in the wee small hours in the morning, obviously. Um, and uh, I mean, historically, that was around sort of around fifteen thousand megawatts, fifteen gigawatts across the NEM, across the whole five regions of the national um, market. Yeah, in Eastern Australia, and uh, you know, versus an average load of about twenty two and a peak of anywhere from sort of 30 to 35. Um, but but people are saying, well, but if you look at the data now, um, that, that number is falling. It's going down, 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 you know, from 15 to 14. In, but in the middle of the day. In the middle of the day, yeah. It's being basically uh, being hollowed out by the, um, the the solar generation around the middle of the day. And, uh, and, and so what people are really looking at when they look at those numbers and they say minimum load is, is falling and falling and falling, they're actually looking not at total load, they're actually looking at what I would call residual load, which is the actual consumption of electricity minus um, the so-called behind the meter generation. And then that residual that's left, which used to be all the load, right? But now it's kind of the residual load. And collectively, that's still the bulk of the energy. But Of of course, people are not stopping electricity use during the day. It's just that the solar power that's not metered is eating looks like it's disappearing yeah so they've got this sort of diy part-time little generator sitting on their roof and then but but by the way uh when when needed we'll just pull what we need from the grid so that so so ironically um although the the um you know the amount of energy that's being called upon from the from the main system is not as large as it would be without that um Actually, the, the total energy on the main system has been roughly flat. So this has been basically cancelling out growth on an annual energy basis. But, but yes. ironically... Which is an, kind yeah. of an efficiency type thing where you've, you've got LEDs, you've got switch mode power supplies, um, you've got a lot of... Yeah, so, speed so, drives, yeah. so let's, come, let's, let's come back to that point, um, but we'll just, just close off this, this point. So I think the key thing is um, that, that we're having this... Um, this this reduction of the, of the of the midday load, and that is um, so that the the irony here is that the, the customers are actually, in a sense, relying on the main power system more than they were before. And the reason I say that is the main power system, people call it the grid, say, is being asked to do a more and more difficult job because it's having to ramp up and down much more and and the balancing task this is the key point that people always need to understand is that you've got in a in a power system you've got to balance the supply and the demand the the generation and the load almost exactly 
every second of every day. That's why, Actually, we, that's why yeah. we use a frequency signal because that's it's it. so fast, that's it's it. so reliable and it's that's so it. sensitive. See it, yeah. So you, you, you're balancing within a sort of very narrow margin, you know, trying to keep the the operator is trying to keep that frequency, which the frequency is the indicator of how well balanced the, the generation and the load is. And they're trying to keep it within 50.15 hertz and, and uh, 49.85 hertz. That's the sort of the... That's the engineering the, task. That's the engineering task. The economic yeah. task is to pay for it somehow. Yeah, that's right. And and so when you when you ask the main system to do a more and more difficult job, ramping up and down more rapidly and all the rest and and to uh do so with less um you know less energy sort of revenue than it would otherwise have then you you drive costs up that's that's what i that's what i say to people i say that your your wind and solar uh can reduce the wholesale price we're talking about the bid stack and uh and those things and you can therefore meet your demand theoretically with a lower priced uh, fuel cost mm. from your generators and gas and hydro. Mm. Mm. However, it imposes other costs which, which apply 100% of the time, mm. whether it's whether the solar panel's working yeah. or not, it yeah. still costs when it's not there. So I like to yeah, say to right. other people, what does your solar panel cost at nighttime? Yeah, so th- actually this is a really interesting point, Ben, because you, you've actually touched on one of the issues that people thinking about energy efficiency and demand side management, you know, right back in the in the early nineties. Well, in the eighties in the US and in the early nineties in Australia. One of the one of the sort of um challenges sort of a policy question or maybe a sort of little paradox was that the the cost structure of the industry was not reflected in the price structure of the tariffs. And so, so if you looked at the cost structure of the industry, you, you had a lot of fixed costs, obviously all the generation assets plus all the transmission assets plus all the distribution assets. You've got a lot of fixed costs in the industry and then relatively small variable costs, you know, basically fuel the coal and the gas plus the operation and maintenance costs. Because um, back in the day, sort of the 80s and 90s, fuel was, uh, there was heaps of it and it was easy yeah. to get and there was export markets and mining booms and all that stuff was happening. Well, did, but, the, but the other thing is that we, we sort of put, we put the customer in a, in a sort of volumetric-based, variable charge-based mindset. So if you look at, even today, you look at your electricity bill, you'll, you will see a fixed component there. There's like, you know, so so, so many so many cents per day to have the connection, whether you use it or not. Um, and then there's, you know, and this many cents per kilowatt hour, whether that's 20 or 25 or whatever it deals. Yeah, so you've it got. is split up between fixed cost and consumption costs. You, you've, you, you do have, yeah, your bills do have a fixed component and a variable component, but relative to the structure of the, of the industry, the cost structure of the industry, the, the, the fixed component is small and the variable component is large. And what that actually does is it incentivizes the industry to sell you more units, which is why historically the, the industry didn't like energy efficiency and demand side management. Yes, Ergon used to sell air conditioners. Yeah, yeah. It's like why why would we do why would we discourage customers from using our product? And the reason that um, electricity utilities companies, you know, even back in the old days of state government ownership and vertical integration. The reason they didn't uh, like to do that was because um, it, it put their financials in a, in a worse position because they were overcharging for variable 
and undercharging for fixed. Is this is this going to change with the, the paradigm I see? Just to get off topic a little bit, AGL mm. with its with its changes, it looks to me like they are interested in getting out of owning and paying for electricity generators. They they appear to be talking about becoming a like a tech, almost a technology services company. Uh, integrate your battery and your rooftop yeah. solar and your electric vehicle and try yeah. and make money out of retail that way. Um, they're talking about closing down 34 terawatt hours of coal-fired generation. It was in the last yeah. year, uh, which is incredible to me. I don't know how they're going to replace that for their customers. Well, I think there's – I mean, clearly there's a very interesting debate going on um, inside – I mean, part of that debate is obviously being conducted in the public domain um, or, or it's kind of spilling out of the – And in a few boardrooms here and there. Yeah, it was spilling out of the boardroom and it's spilling out of the executive suites. I mean, clearly there's a divergence of views on um, what will happen, what should happen, what's the best strategy for the company. You know, what's where's the industry going, where's policy going, where's technology going, what's the best strategy for the company. I, I see policy pushing us into a corner that we won't be able to get out of. Yeah, so this this is a really interesting point. So – I think, um, yeah, we're, 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 I think what we're heading towards is a world where there's, there's all these paradoxes that are becoming more and more severe. Uh, and one of the paradoxes is that we've, we've created a situation and this is becoming more and more apparent where the owners of assets, like the most obvious example is like coal-fired, large coal-fired power plants, are looking at these assets which are having erosion of dispatch so you know which is what we talked about before the yeah. duck curve the solar yeah, loss, loss right. of the baseload market so midday, midday solar um serving load behind the meter less less need for generation from the large plants so erosion of volume erosion of price as well so that there's a tendency when you've got an oversupply of uncontrollable weather dependent you know wind and solar that the price gets depressed at those times which also impacts on the um the thermal plants so you've got erosion of volume erosion of price which is a double whammy on your revenue line but you've and also then, you've also got big customers choosing to go for locked in fixed price contracts yeah to but before but even yeah but even before we get to that you've you've got on the on the cost side you've got increasing costs because you know what we're talking about before you're asking the system to do a more difficult job you're, you're trying to and that includes ramping these uh, assets up and down more often you can see that particularly yeah. at other uh, big power stations in uh, new south wales they're ramping like half load they're yeah. down sort of minimum load at, uh during the day and ramping yeah. up over the course of about two hours in yeah. the afternoon so they're being pushed harder and harder this is going to drive up this is going to increase wear and tear. Early failures. Yeah, it's going to drive up maintenance costs. And then at the same time, you're in an environment where people are saying... You've got no future. Yeah, you've got no future. We don't need those assets anymore. And so, you know, when, when, the, when you start to move the dials in these very adverse directions, you get to the point where the owners of these assets will say, actually, financially, commercially, doesn't make sense for us to keep this asset in operation. We, we, we'd probably be better off retiring it early. And you've also got a lot of pressure from the public and the media and the politicians, which is working against them actually raising their, their like their bidding price to actually pay for some of this. Yeah, well, that's probably. See, I, I don't understand how AGL can mm, have thirty dollars a megawatt hour running and fuel costs combined for their coal across their fleet and still lose four hundred billion dollars in the last year. That was out of their annual report. 
Yeah, well, that's a that's an interesting question. But I think the but the paradox that I think we we should um, be aware of here is that um, when you you get the situation we're getting into is where the owner of the asset says it doesn't make financial sense. But at the same time, the system as a whole needs that asset. Yes. Yeah, so this is getting us to uh, one of my one of my questions I really want to talk to you about. Like the purpose of the market I see is yeah. is yeah. partly to balance supply and demand, but it's also got to build generators that do the yeah. job. Yeah, that's right. So the so now you're coming to the 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 theory and the philosophy of electricity markets yeah and in your in your interview with robert bryce uh only what, a couple of months ago now yeah uh you you mentioned that you you're expected it to fail if not failing now the market is destined for failure and uh i, t- I tend to agree with that gloomy outlook unfortunately yeah, yeah so I, i've been saying this for at least i've been saying it publicly for at least six years actually it was around november 2016 when i stood up at the engineers australia conference in, it was here in brisbane and said, uh, you know, is the market, I was provocatively asked, I, I, I put up a, a freeze frame from the dead parrot sketch of Monty Python and I asked, you know, is, is the market dead or is it just resting? And what, are the, what, what was the collective room like? Well, the, the, interest, the other question I asked was, you know, are we sleepwalking back to central planning and, and would we be better off with central planning than a, than a sort of you know competitive free market environment, and I thought because you can't have you can't have both they fight each other. Yeah, they, well, it, this is this is at the core of another one of the paradoxes that we're confronting. But I sort of thought that after how many years, like twenty years of of the market, and you know a lot of academic papers saying yeah it's all a success, it's worked really well, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. I thought most people would say yeah of course we you know the market is the best way. And maybe some sort of crazy old guy up the back might have. I'm you know, sensing a, a butt coming. <laughs> yeah, cra- crazy old guy. Go, oh, no, no, central planning's better. But I almost fell off the podium when like two thirds of the room put their hands up and said, "Yeah, I think central planning's better than a market." Okay. And then I suddenly realised, oh, that's right. It's an engineers conference. <laughs> <laughs> it's not an economists conference. There's right? a lot of money in uh, en- central planning for engineers. Well, no, no, and but I think. I think engineers, you know, engineers are taught to design things and, uh, you know, you design... We don't question why, we just do. No, you design, you design the whole thing, right? You don't, you don't sort of have competition between, you know, one part of the design team and another part. You design the whole thing as, a, as an entire system. And so that, that is the engineering way of thinking. Um, and, and, and I think engineers also understand, for example, that, you know, there's a very... Uh, inextricable link between generation planning and transmission planning. You, you know, it's, yes. it's, you know, so the, the market, the 1990s market theory said, no, 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 that's okay. What, okay. So they said, the economist said, okay, fair enough. You know, the transmission system and the distribution networks, that that's a natural monopoly. So we'll, we'll regulate that. That's an, that's an economic yeah. question. I like a group yeah. of engineers, yeah. you could sit them down and they could design you the most efficient uh, minimum required with the minimum overhead electricity system to serve the national electricity market that could be done uh pretty well but well, but it, the, it, it yeah. can't it can't then design a pricing mechanism engineers won't be able to do that in in the classical sense for me it's it's almost any one of those intangible questions think, how do you but, get to the yeah, point where but, the market works for everybody yeah but i think the the work that was the, actually the work that was done on this was was um, done in the 1980s, probably even even started in the late 70s. That and set up what we have now. The, the, the seminal work 
was done by Fred Schweppe and and the team at MIT, um, and I think they I think they started working on it in the late seventies. But certainly they they were publishing papers by the early eighties. So they're talking about a clearing price and yeah. So the design of what's called the electricity spot market um, and the the classic book it was all sort of pulled together into a book that was published in nineteen eighty eight called the Spot Pricing of Electricity. That's like the the recipe book or the bible of how to design a a classic you know energy only electricity spot market. So, and, and there's definitely engineering thinking and engineering influence in that economic work. There's no question about that. Um, so that's what we started with around about, what, 1998 to 2000 in Australia? When we oh, no, before that. Before that? Yeah, so, you know, the first, the, the, the beginnings of the thinking on this in, in seriously in Australia was in the early 90s, was actually when um, the Kennett government came in, power in victoria and uh they had a they had a balance sheet to sort out mm. there was some privatization went on there yeah so the way that the way that, the, that they sort of got the balance sheet back in shape was was through asset sales and um and obviously one of the biggest assets they had to sell was the the former state electricity commission of victoria secv and i believe there's yeah. uh harking back to efficiency i think they went from something like sixty thousand employees to about two thousand across the sector that's some numbers that i've heard oh and i the numbers i remember from the time maybe my memory is, is fuzzy but the numbers i remember is they went from ten thousand employees to five thousand and the lights didn't flicker okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so which uh yeah reminded me of the old but i once as a boy asked my father dad how many people work at ford you know he worked at, at a ford plant and uh, he said oh about half of them <laughs> and then, and then when I when I came out of university and arrived in my first job, one of my colleagues in the consultancy, the energy efficiency and demand side management consultancy, was a guy called Linton Parker. Actually, so I don't know if Linton's listens I'd, to I'd, that. I'd, I'd be a little bit but, bit more harsher than that. I'd say the Pareto rule probably applies. Twenty percent yeah. of the people do eighty percent of the work. Yeah, maybe. But Linton told me a few funny stories from the SEC days, and he, you know, and, and he told me those numbers that they they cut the workforce by half and. The lights didn't, the lights go, didn't yeah. flicker. But, but I think the other thing that did happen in that era was that when they went from the old, you know, the, basically the entity that Sir John Monash built, right, greatest general of World War I, given the job of building, electrifying the state of Victoria, large central power plants and all that, you know, he built that organisation and, and that, that organisation was sort of sliced and diced you know, cut cut up horizontally and vertically, and a lot of people will let go, and and I think a lot of the old experienced engineering talent left the industry, and there was a move to much more sort of, you know, a lot more economists and finance guys and traders and mm-hmm. and uh, you know running the market aspects, and then and be, because the engineering aspects had been so robustly engineered, um, you know, everything sort of worked fine. So that that actually was implemented in Victoria. So before the NEM, Victoria implemented a competitive power market called the the VPX, Victorian Power Exchange. Okay, and that was part yeah. of that privatisation yeah, activity. So, yep. so the, the big decision that the Kennett government made and Alan Stockdale as treasurer was not to go down the sort of old American model of regulation of, you know, government regulation of privately owned companies, but instead to implement a UK style competitive market. And so they sort of actually literally borrowed the model that had been implemented by Thatcher in the UK, but the intellectual work had been done in America at MIT by Schweppe and others. So that, but the, the, the key point I think to make here, Ben, is that 
even in those really early days, even in the early 1980s, like as early as 1983, when the early thinking was being done on electricity spot markets, and the investment problem was one of the things on some people's minds. So there's, there's two things that are being... Um, that they're trying to achieve with these kind of reforms. One is operational efficiency. Are we dispatching the plants as efficiently as they could be? That's, that's the operational question. And then the other question is investment efficiency. So, you know, are we making the right investments of the right type at the right time in the right place? And that, but that you know, uh, seems to have excluded our transmission networks. Mm-hmm. Well, no, so, so the, 100% regulated. Yeah, so, the, so the, the criticism from uh, laissez-faire competitive market economists is, oh, you, you, know, you engineers there, you're just sort of feathering your own nest and you're gold-plating the system and you're overbuilding it and you, know, you don't really need that much reserve margin and, and so on and so on. And there's all these, these dreadful inefficiencies we have to squeeze out. Okay, that, that was the argument. And so... Uh, and, and if we put a regulator in place to supervise you, if we privatise you and then regulate you, you'll have all the smarts and you'll always be outgunning the regulator and pulling the wool over the regulator's eyes and that, that's no good, right? So, so, you know, the regulator will always lose that game. So what we're going to do is we're going to impose competitive market discipline and, uh, and that, will, that will drive efficiency and discover prices. So the, but the criticism... The criticism of this system was, was already there in 1983 from Paul Josco and Richard Schlemensi, also at MIT. So in, in the process of implementing this, they were aware of some of the shortcomings and risks? Now, what I'm saying is before it was implemented. Yeah. So when, it was, when the theoretical work was still being done. So they knew there was some... There were other economists. Areas they needed to deal yeah, with. There were other you know, serious economic professors who were saying... I think there's a problem here. They're saying, okay, so um, they basically said, yeah, the, the, the spot market to drive operational efficiency, that should, be, that should be fine. Turned out to be more complicated than they thought. But however, investment is going to be an issue because it's going to be very hard in this kind of market environment to actually get the sort of investment that requires very sort of long-term time horizons and actually requires, you know, very long-term contracting uh, to underpin the investment. That's one of the, that's one of the um, recommendations or findings from your nuclear report as well. I noticed yeah. that you'd said you'd, one, of the, one of the mechanisms a nuclear station would need is a, is a long-term offtake. No question. Yep. Well, but actually, it's not just a nuclear power plant that needs a long-term offtake contract, although nuclear power plant probably needs the longest offtake contract from 20 years 30 years uh well the the illustrated illustrative financing example we give in the report is a 30-year contract um and we think that'd be enough to you know get it you know make it bankable um you know and that's an asset that should have a 60-year life at least um but but if you look at other generation types they still even today they they all need long-term contracts in fact the the place that we've got to in the market is a place where you can't um, you can't bank a, a generation investment on the back of a power price for a spot market power price no, forecast. No chance. Yeah, there, there was one plant that was um, that was uh, done on as a merchant plant on the basis of a spot price forecast, which at the time apparently I think it was the biggest might have been the biggest private sector power investment in the world at yeah, that time. Is that in Australia? Yeah. 
You don't, you, this is here in Queensland, Milmarin. Oh, right, yeah. I was, I was going to think of Milmarin. It's the yeah. only privately owned coal-fired power yeah, station Yeah, in, yeah, yeah. Milmarin was done as a merchant plant on the back of a forecast of spot prices. But you go to every single banker in Australia today and they'll all tell you exactly the same thing because I know because we talked to all of them in 2017. Almost, we interviewed almost all the bank, Australian banks, American banks, European banks, Asian banks. They all told us the same thing. They said this, the, you, you cannot... Uh, they said, that, you know, no one can produce a bankable price forecast of this market, meaning no. the, the, the national You can't predict market. where the spot price yeah. is going to go. There's too many influences yeah. in it. So, so too many factors. So it doesn't matter how good your price forecasting model is. And by the way, the price forecasting models have struggled. So what is this? This says a lot for me for the, um, the market as it stands at the moment because I don't think uh, anybody with any sense would design it the way it is with a lot of it subsidised, some of it with and with mm. the other half of it uh, deliberately sort of undermined economically yeah. uh, a bunch of these widespread small output intermittent generators uh, in not, not close to the load centers. Yeah. So everything's getting more inefficient, yeah. underutilized. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the market doctrine is you just, you just pass a good electricity act, you know, write some good market rules, Set up a good regulator, and then governments can just walk away, and never worry about it again. And the and the invisible hand of the market will deliver you. Mm, that's you utopia, know, but that's that's not quite going to get there when you've got politicians well, who need to meet targets, right? The, the the thing is that you know you know maybe that maybe that would have been true. You know maybe a market maybe a system that was evolving in a very sort of steady, predictable, organic sort of way over over time maybe would work under those conditions. Um, and certainly if, you, if you're in a sort of thermal generation world, that, that's, that's still a plausible argument. Um, but the problem is that, so the Victorian market, you know, was introduced sort of early 90s and then or mid-90s, I think, and then by 98, we had the national market. Was that, was that a, a copy of the Victorian model? Uh, pretty close? Pretty close. Pretty similar and, and inspired by it, um, but obviously required a lot more. Yeah, the interconnector work. thing to deal with. And well, not just that, but legally, and you know, you're dealing with a federal system, and so you know, you're trying to herd the cats and and get them all to sort of walk in the same direction, and uh, and that and that that was done, that was achieved uh, remarkably, and and then. I mean, originally it was really it was really the sort of southeast corner. It was really Victoria, New South Wales, South Australia, driving and it, then yeah. and then well, no, physically interconnected together at that stage. Okay, and then BassLink was linked link Tasmania in much later, and the New South Wales Queensland interconnector was put in also after the NEM was implemented. But the but the but the the thing is that that so the the national market got up and running in late ninety eight, early ninety nine. Um, it was the 9th of December 98 or something. It went live, but basically since 99. And, uh, and then like no sooner had the market been established on these supposed free market principles, etc. Mr. Howard introduced the RET. Yeah, you, yeah. Get, you get a conservative prime minister coming along and basically breaking the fundamental principles of free market economics. Because yeah. one, one thing that stuck with me from your Robert Bryce chat was um, that the, you – said the market hadn't had a chance to run its course. Uh, and a good example yeah. of that is, I suppose, there's been a couple of big generators built. There was a, f a few gas-fired generators built. Um, Travis Baker had a hand in that. And then you had the Queensland government building Cogan Creek 
and then you had Mil Merrin. But apart from that, um, everything's it's it's difficult yeah. to say that it's yeah it's, the, the subsidies and everything have undermined everything since then. Yeah, so I think one of the things that's uh, interesting to do is look at, look at the uh, assets that the generation the big generation assets that exist on the market today, and even today most of those assets date uh, predate the market. Yep, you know, 100%. so they were they were they were they were planned and financed, planned, approved, financed, constructed, commissioned under a central planning world. That's just the sort of historical factual reality. Yep. And even the, the Queensland ones, that's central planning from a government. That's government decisions, not, a, not the market really. Well, yeah, that's right. So we've got – so not only do we have a federal system in Australia, but we've, we've still got a mixed hybrid in terms of ownership – We've, it's a it's a hybrid or mixed system yeah. between state and uh, private sector. Well, I, I think yeah. I don't think a lot of people realise how much of it is actually state owned. For example, yeah. Tasmania. Yep. <laughs> uh, you, then you've got Snowy Hydro and all its assets. Yep. And then you've got Queensland. Yeah. And then I think half of the New South Wales distribution network is state owned. Uh, and then you've got all the regulatory tiers on top yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah. So the, you you cannot remove government from this sector, and the other thing, the other thing I think is important to remember is that um, you know, the, the great, the great quote is "government's own failure." Mm. So when in, actually in any large infrastructure, but certainly in electricity, so when something goes wrong, people don't say, "Oh, it's the fault of this sort of mysterious thing called the market," or you know, it's those those bad corporations, or they they point straight to the government because people still feel, even. How many years after privatization? More than twenty years, sort of coming up to twenty-five years. You know, a quarter of a century later, people still feel that the ultimate responsibility <laughs> rests with the government to keep the lights on. I find it's I find it an interesting argument. Like, is it would it be better monopolized by the government completely, or would it be better privatized? But what bothers me is I think um, we're not we're not in a good place now, market-wise. Mm. I think it's this horrible mix of intervention and uh corporations and and people giving up basically uh and trying basically accepting the inevitable uh that's that's how i see it what do you what do you think is uh what do you think what's how do i phrase this what's uh if you had chris bowen in the room and you had half an hour to him what what are the things you'd point out to him and what suggestions would you give to him and say mr bowen here's the state of the world as i see it this is what we need to do to fix it yeah, well, I think the risk is we end up with the worst of, of both worlds. You know, we, we end up with the worst things about... Um, central planning. Central planning and the worst things about the private sector. And you can, you can... It's not too difficult to show that that's actually the direction we're going. The next thing I think I'd say is that, you know, the, the energy policy trilemma is real. Every country in the world faces the same basic trilemma which you know every country is trying to do the same thing right which is you're trying to maximize security of supply you're trying to minimize costs and you're trying to minimize environmental impacts people focus on emissions but it's the whole yes. set of environmental impacts you agree they're the three big goals everyone's trying to do that it doesn't matter if you're the richest country in the world or the poorest if you're the biggest country in the world or the smallest. Correct. It doesn't matter if it's private sector pure and yeah. or if it's if it's government state owned. The only thing that would change yeah. would be the proportion data sign well, the, what, criticality to each one. What changes is the specific details because actually if you look at 
any, if you look at all the energy systems in the world, there's no two, or even just the electricity system, there's no two electricity systems that are identical and there's no two energy systems that are identical. So everyone's got their own specific circumstances, so the details are all country-specific, but the general principles are global and common. Yes. And so the point is that, you know, the, the, the most dangerous thing is to deny that everyone's got those three goals and the next most dangerous thing is to deny that they're always in, almost always in tension. The only time it changes is if there's some sort of shock or like a technology revolution or the oil shocks in the 70s or, you yeah. know. So my, my advice so, to Bowen would be something along the lines of make small changes, uh, control the things you have control of and mm-hmm. minimise your exposure to things you don't have control of. And in that sense, for example, um, fuel price shocks is a, is a classic right this year. Mm. Uh, with with uh, Russia taking out a, the world's largest gas supplier, yeah, taking all that off uh, yeah. a lot of the a lot of the Western world, yeah. um, and of course that's that's had its impact. People will debate how much impact it's had. You've also had uh, rain, flooding coal mines, which has mm. made fuel uh, generators, coal generators bid more. A few things yep. like that. Um, in that sense, you could nuclear plays a huge role because. How often? How often do you refuel a, a nuclear reactor? A big one every oh, couple of years. T- t- no, t- I think the typical fuel reload cycle on a light water re- pressurized water reactor in a light water reactor is like eighteen months, something okay. like that. Yeah. Okay, but that that's certainly not an instantaneous thing like fuel and uh, like coal and gas, uh, and it and it means you're not up and down like wind and solar. Yeah. So the uh, before we leave today, the uh, the market is failing. Is that is that your general assessment? Yeah, I think so. I think it is, and uh, yeah, and I mean, you, the, just to link the point you were just making with what I was saying before is that if you look at those three goals you're trying to achieve, you know, cost, reliability, clean. Yeah, that's right. Then, and you look at the technologies, and you know, different technologies, you know, tick some or other of those boxes, you know, to differing degrees. But the, there's only one technology that all three and that's that's nuclear energy so the one technology that can actually do the things that every country in the world's trying to achieve is the one that we've banned and so you've got to ask yourself is that really sensible yeah um it, it doesn't it doesn't add up i mean there's a there's an interesting venn diagram where you have the people who are very like very concerned about emissions uh and then there's the people who accept nuclear and they don't always intersect, mm. which is which is pretty incredible to me. Yeah, well, I think there's a there's been one of the things that's happened for a long time is that we've been misinformed and misled, and not just on nuclear though. I'd say on on a lot of things, but, on of but things, definitely yeah. on nuclear. Mm. Yeah, and but, but that's starting to change. I think people are starting to to realise um, that they've been you know misled. And I th- it's it's interesting. Uh, because I think if if we were to get a nuclear fired power sta- nuclear fired a uh, a nuclear power station, it would have to have some kind of policy support that would be in incentives or a long term contract, yeah, um, backed by the government in in some way. Um, I've, I'm under no illusions about that. But the people who oppose it, uh, generally oppose nuclear, are generally on the renewables side of things. And they quite often say, oh, you can't have it because it's subsidised. <laughs> it costs too much. Yeah, it's pretty... Ignoring their own, yeah. their own, what's in their own ball court. Yeah, it's ironic. Um, well, the, the, the key thing about renewables that you've got to understand is that they're, um, 
they're, they're parasitic on the they you know they're parasitic on the host system. Yeah. Now in, in well, they can't survive without. Yeah, they you need can't the, have renewables without. They need the hosts. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's good parasites in nature, so don't don't take it as a, a negative term. It's just a scientific fact. You know, that's that's the role they play, and there's and you know you can hear that from both renewables advocates and and people who think renewables are not a good idea. I think I yeah. think everyone who has uh, an open mind on the, on the question acknowledges that it, if if there was a if there was a free market and a level playing field, you would have some renewables in the system without a doubt. Yeah, well, actually, that's what we find. So you, if you model the system properly and if you let the model choose between all the different forms of generation, you will find it, a, a, a cost-minimising model will choose a certain amount of wind and solar, yep. but only up to a certain point. It yes. won't oversaturate the system. Yes. Right? And that's where I get to in yeah. just the mental thought process yeah. of it because when I – like I said earlier, your wind and solar with, with its very low operating cost can lower the wholesale, the instantaneous wholesale price, but there's they're imposed, parasitic imposed on the existing system. There's only so much the existing system can take before it starts costing a lot more. Yeah. So it's in a symbiotic relationship with the main system and if it gets out of control, it's a real problem. Yep. Yep. It's the uh, the fox in the hen house. <laughs> <laughs> um, Stephen, thanks very much for talking to you today. I appreciate it. I hope our conversation has prompted some uh, from uh, some uh, deep thoughts for our listeners. Yeah, yeah, I hope so too, Ben. And it's been a real pleasure talking with you today. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a week. In the meantime, if you like the podcast, hit the like button, subscribe, tell your friends. <laughs>